and it's just a private matter. And so there's no problem with cohabitating, living with someone, having babies with someone without getting married. Is marriage is, it doesn't matter. And so why get married anyway in the first place? According to this group, you, many people get divorced anyway. And so what's the point? In fact, there's a, in the USA, there's an entrepreneurial jeweller who, who came up with this business plan and that is to offer wedding rings for hire. You see, there's no expectation that the marriage would last and so you can hire your wedding ring and pay the weekly rate and if you last a year, you get the ring for, not for free, but you've paid for the year of rent and so that is one way. Marriage, just indifferent, doesn't really matter. But then, of course, there are the strange view of marriage. There are men and women in the USA, this, this is strange, who choose to marry themselves. Have you heard of this? And there's in fact a word for it. It's called sologamy. Sologamy. Um, I saw this article. This lady, Yasmin Ellaby, said this. I wanted to have a celebration of myself. My wedding was going to be about me, making a commitment to love myself, to honour myself and to know my self-worth. In fact, you can buy these kits online, self-marriage kits. It comes with only the one ring, of course, and invitations. Or some other strange view of marriage. How about a three-person marriage? This is quite recent, only the other week. Why limit it to two people? Why limit it to one? Let's have a three-way marriage. And so a Greens party leader, Natalie Bennett from the UK, she's keen to consider the recognition of such a three-way relationship. It's, if it's marriage about love, if it's about consenting adults, why does it matter anyway? And so you've got the negative view, you've got the unrealistic positive view, you've got the indifferent view, and now you've got these strange views. And of course, what's the current climate? What's the current push? Well, the current push in our political climate is let's just redefine marriage. Let's redefine marriage. Even big businesses this past week, do you see this, this uh, page in the newspaper? All these big businesses are putting their names behind this push to support same-sex marriage. It actually just makes me wonder when businesses became the moral compass of society. Now, of course, they're just in it for the money, aren't they? They're in it for the business. Imagine standing out, putting out ad, we are against same-sex marriage. That's going to be bad for business. And so now, in this climate, marriage gets all too confusing. There's the negative, there's the unrealistically positive, there's the indifferent, there's the strange, strange, and now there's the, let's redefine it. And so what's the Australian definition of marriage according to our Marriage Act? Well, it is this. Marriage means a union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others, voluntarily entered into for life. That is our definition in our Australian Marriage Act. But the current push is, of course, to redefine that. Let's redefine that. Let's push to reword it so that now it would read, a union between two people replacing a man and a woman, just two people. Now, of course, it's argued that this is about equality in marriage, that there should be no discrimination at all in marriage. 
But you see, that's a strange idea because by definition, marriage always excludes. Marriage always uh, discriminates. It is not about equality. Even if it is changed, just say it is changed, where it will read uh, marriage means a union between two people, it will still discriminate. You see, it will still discriminate against siblings getting married. It's not about equality there, you see. But why should it matter? If it's just about love and consenting adults, why should it matter? It will still exclude one person marrying himself or herself. You see, because you're just defining it as two people, but what about the one who wants to marry himself or herself? And of course, it will still exclude the three people, the three-person marriage. Why should it matter anyway? Why should it matter if it's just about love? If they are all consenting adults, why should it matter? And so you see, to redefine marriage is the push at the moment, this political climate. Now, I'm not sure if you've thought about this, but to try to redefine a definition is actually quite a strange, strange idea. It will be a bit like taking a word from the dictionary. Just just say we take the word blue, the colour blue, this colour down here, and we say, let's redefine blue. So colour red is over this side, thinking, this is inequality. Why can you be called blue and I can't? Though I'm red. And so we we complain. And and so what will happen is if blue was changed to include red and all the other colours of the rainbow, blue would cease to mean blue. And in a sense that's what's happening when you try to redefine a meaning, redefine a definition. It will cease to hold its meaning. And so to redefine marriage is to change the whole nature of marriage itself. And so today, of course, we want to know what the Bible says. We want to know what God says. Well, the current Australian marriage definition is in fact a good reflection of what God says in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. So right at the beginning when God instituted the institution of marriage, this was what we find, Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And so marriage in God's eyes is a union between one man and one woman. They become one flesh, that is, they become a new family unit, the basic building blocks of society and civilization. There is the leaving and then there is the cleaving. There is the leaving from the parents You see, that's a good thing when you get married. You don't stay with your parents, you move out. You live alone with your your spouse. That's because you've become a new family unit. So there is the leaving, but there's also the cleaving, the cleaving, the the clinging to the husband or wife, and that is for life. Now, the word cleave in in the Hebrew, the word to cleave to or to cling to, it's a word that's also used for how scales are stuck on a crocodile. It's inseparable. You're not meant to separate it, the, the scales on a crocodile. You're not meant to rip it apart. Or it's used for how an incurable disease clings to a person. And so you can't get rid of it. It's incurable. And so in marriage, when I cleave to Yvonne, when I cling, clung, is that the right word? Clung to Yvonne, I've become like an incurable disease <laughs> that was stuck on her. She can't get rid of me even if she wanted to. But that's in a good way, of course. (laughs) And so how are Christians meant to define marriage? Well, Christopher Ashe, 
in his excellent book, you should get a copy of this book, Marriage and Sex in the Service of God, he gives us an excellent definition of marriage which summarises the biblical teaching of marriage and it's worth remembering and it is this. Marriage is, firstly, the voluntary sexual and public social union. Therefore, marriage cannot be coerced. And also, marriage cannot be sexless. There must be sex in marriage. And also, it is not a private matter. It affects society, it affects civilization. Secondly, marriage is of one man and one woman. And therefore, same sex, call it whatever you like, but it can't be marriage. You're just mucking around with the dictionary, changing its meaning. And uh, along with that, polygamy is not marriage and sologamy is not marriage. Thirdly, from different families. One man, one woman from different families. And so, incest is not on. You can't marry your brother or your sister. Fourthly, this union is patterned upon the union of God with his people, his bride, the Christ with his church. Therefore, marriage is not a man-made thing. It is, in fact, a shadow of something bigger than the marriage itself. It's a shadow of the intimacy and union between Christ and his church whom he died for. And so marriage is is not the be-all and end-all that some of us make it to be. It is not the ultimate human experience. And finally, intrinsic to this union is God's calling to lifelong exclusive sexual faithfulness. Therefore, marriage is not grounded on emotions. It's not grounded on feelings of love that comes and goes. It's grounded on a covenant, on a promise, on public vows of sexual faithfulness, on on a commitment to one wife or to one husband for life. And therefore, in God's design of marriage, divorce was never intended. And what this also means is that this final point It's a foolish thing to live together, to cohabitate with a guy or girl, to give yourself sexually to someone before they they publicly make a promise, a commitment to to stay with you, to stick with you throughout their whole life. That would be a foolish thing. And so looking at this definition, some of you might think, this is just a Christian thing. So why don't you Christians have your marriage your way and leave the rest of the world to have marriage their way. Well, you see, that will be okay if marriage is a man-made thing, something that came into being from our human thinking. But you see, marriage is a God-made thing. Marriage is something that God himself instituted for all creation, for all people. And so marriage is a creation thing. It has been embedded into the moral makeup of how creation runs and works and how people are to behave and relate to one another. And so, because marriage is a creation thing, it is good for all people. Every single person, it is good for all people, all humanity, regardless of religion or culture or ethnicity. It is not just a Christian thing, it is a creation thing, good for all people. And so today, after having considered the confusion with marriage, 
a definition of marriage, the biblical teaching of marriage, what we'll spend the rest of our time doing is having a look at that passage that was read to us in 1 Corinthians 7. This helps highlight some of these points. And so what we see in our passage is that firstly, marriage is for sex. Secondly, marriage is for life. And thirdly, marriage is for God. And so let's have a look. Firstly, marriage is for sex. You see, the, the only relationship that can be sexual, according to God, according to what is right and good, is the marriage relationship. Marriage is the only sexual relationship there is. There, there must be. And so relationships between family, siblings, parent and child, between friends, that is not meant to be sexual at all. The only context in which a relationship can become sexual is in marriage. And if you remember from last week when we talked about pornea, sexual immorality, any sexual arousal, any sexual stimulation outside the context of a faithful, exclusive, lifelong, committed relationship, marriage relationship, well, that is considered pornea. That is considered sexual immorality. And so, remember, it can be visual, it can be verbal, it can be virtual, it can be physical. And so, Christians must flee from that. But within marriage, within this context, within this relationship, then there must be sex. It is sexual and there must be a lot of it we see in this passage. You see, sex is like the superglue that holds the marriage together. It was designed by God as the most intimate way of bonding one person to another. It's a superglue. It bonds a person, if you think about it, it bonds a person emotionally, mentally, psychologically, physically. And so it was designed to bond a marriage together for life. And so it was designed to help the husband and the wife to cleave to one another, like the incurable disease. You're stuck to one another. You can't get rid of them. And so there's this sense of oneness, this one flesh idea without any shame. And so last week in 1 Corinthians 6, the problem Paul was addressing in that chapter was sexual license. They were thinking, let's do it. Anything goes. But now in 1, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the problem is the opposite. The problem Paul addresses here in this passage is that the view that sex is dirty and filthy and immoral and so you shouldn't even be having sex with your husband or wife. That is what he is addressing in this chapter. And so Paul says that is wrong. That is a wrong view. Within marriage, there must be a lot of it. Asceticism is wrong. And so if you are married, you are to have sex and a lot of it. And that's what we see in these opening verses. I mean, for married couples, if you need command, commanding, this is it. You know, God tells you. Look at verse 1 and 2. For the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, I want you to have a look at your footnote there. The translation is, is in a sense, not so precise. It is good, we read in the footnote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations or literally not to touch a woman. And so what Paul was doing here, he was quoting them and now he's going to refute them. He goes on to say, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this doesn't mean here, go and find yourself a wife or a husband if you want to have sex. That is not the idea. 
What it is saying is that if you are married, you already have a husband or a wife, then you should be having sex. And so marriage, what we see is it's meant to be sexual. In fact, what Paul now says would have been radical for first century people to hear. You see, in that society back then, women did not share equal rights with men. They did not have the same privileges as men and often they were abused by men. But what Paul does here is that he puts them on the same level as men. He says you are equal with men when it comes to your bodies, when it comes to sex. And so husbands, he says, owe it to their wives. They have an obligation to their wives. They have the languages, they have a debt to pay to their wife, to give their bodies to their wife. And likewise, wives, you have an obligation to your husbands. Your body is not your own. So look at verses 3 to 5. The husband should fulfil his marital duty or he's got an obligation, he's got a debt to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. You see, that view would have been radical. He goes on to say, do not deprive, or the word is do not defraud each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you might devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Now the language here is that this is quite exceptional, that you would do this, that you would agree. So the language is a bit like, except perhaps maybe you decide to pray or take a break and pray, but get back together again. So that's the idea, it's an exceptional circumstance. And why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, do you see how this makes so much sense? Thinking about what Paul says, it makes so much sense inside the marriage context. We will explore sex more next week. But what Paul now also talks about is singleness, which we'll also explore in following weeks. But what he says here is that whatever stage of life you're at, if you're single, if you're unmarried or if you're married, whatever stage you're at, it is a gift from God. So if you're single now, that's a gift from God. If you're married, that is a gift from God. And we see this, verses 6 to 9. I say this as a concession, not as a command, which means you have the freedom to stay single or get married. They're both a gift. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. But to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. So what Paul is saying there is that singleness is a good thing. We'll see in in following weeks. But if they cannot control themselves, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now again, we need to look at the language here. The the original text, it just ends as to burn. So you should read this. It is better to marry than to burn. And it ends there. And so what that means is, it doesn't mean that if you are uncontrolled sexually, then you should get married just to have sex. It's not saying that and for two reasons. And the two reasons is because all Christians, whether you're single or married, we are all called to be self-controlled. You can't just let your, your, your passions drive you nuts. And the second reason is not everyone who wants to get married will be able to get married. And so what this verse is saying is that you are free to marry. If you are with someone, if you are betrothed with someone, which we'll see later on, then you are free to marry. If you burn, you have that freedom. 
And so the teaching of this first point is, if you are married, when you are married, then there must be sex. Marriage is for sex. Secondly, we see that marriage is not just for sex, but it is for lifelong exclusive faithfulness. It is meant to be for life. Divorce should never be the solution to we've just fallen out of love. We, we started seeing things differently. We're just not happy together anymore. I don't feel satisfied in our marriage or marriage is just too hard. You see, divorce must never be the solution to that. Now, I must qualify this and say that the Bible does speak of situations where divorce is allowed, like in adultery, but even so, it's never encouraged. It was only given as a concession because humans are weak. And so here, even in separation, even there, if there is a separation between a husband and wife, the goal is always for reconciliation, that they are brought back together. And we see this in verses 10 to 11. He says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. You see, marriage is for life. And this is the case even if you are married to a non-Christian, Paul goes on to say. You stick with them even if you, you, you were married and then you became a Christian. They don't, uh, you, you've got different views now, but you stay and stick with that marriage. But he goes on to say, if the, un, uh, the non-Christian decides to leave you, decides to be unfaithful and leave you, in a sense Paul says you can't stop them. And so this is what we see. Have a look at verse 12 onwards. He says this, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now this last bit is not permission to marry a non-Christian, which Paul goes on to point quite clearly later on is wrong. But what's happening here is something that has changed between the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when you married a, a Gentile, if you're a Jewish person, you married a Gentile, that would make you unclean. It would contaminate you. But the reverse was happening here. When a Christian is married to a non-Christian, somehow the non-Christian spouse, husband or wife, and their children will enjoy some of the privileges that is connected to being a Christian. They've been set apart somehow by God. That is, they can hear the gospel, they are prayed for, they know about God, but it doesn't mean that they are Christian. It doesn't make them Christian. And so we see verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the encouragement Paul makes is to stick with the marriage. Divorce is not the solution. You stick with it. If there is a separation, the goal is to be reconciled. It is meant to be for life. Now, for those of you who are married or thinking about marriage, you need to see how reassuring this is. It means that marriage is for life, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. What keeps the marriage together 
are not the feelings. The feelings of romance, they come and go. The feelings of love and all those emotions, they come and go. Romance, I mean, wasting money on flowers, that was a time of the past, that is gone. But we're still married, you see. What keeps a marriage together is not the feelings of love. What keeps a marriage together is the covenant. It is the promise. It is the pledge. It is the public vows that are made. And so, Yvonne would often joke with me and with others about me and she would say when she's annoyed, it happens very rarely but it does happen, I can't get a refund for this guy. I'm stuck with him. She would say that to others. She would say that to me. I can't get a refund for you. And I would say, well, that's right. You are stuck with me, like it or not. But I know she's joking. Well, she better be joking when she says that. But you see, marriage is for life. You are stuck together. Even when there is unfaithfulness, even when there is adultery and there is a separation, the goal is to be reconciled. The goal is to be Christ-like. And so marriage is to be honoured. It is for life. No refunds. And finally, marriage is also for God. Marriage within itself is other person-centred, as we'll look at next week when, when you consider sex. The wife is for the husband and the husband is for the wife. Marriage is other person-centred, but it is not inward-centred. Do you understand the difference? It is other person-centred, it is not inward-centred. And so what I mean by this is that when couples get married, the focus of the marriage is not just the marriage, where they gaze at each other's eyes and romance each other all day and night and melt each other's heart and withdraw from all other relationships withdraw from church and just focus on the marriage. Well, marriage is not for that purpose. You're other person-centred, but you're not inward-centred. You see, marriage is for God. It is for the service of God. When a husband and a wife are married, they are a couple that are brought together so that they may serve God together. Not just to serve each other, but to serve God as a new family unit. And that's why, if you know the story of Genesis 1, 2 and 3, In the Garden of Eden, when God created Eve, it wasn't just so that Adam would not be lonely anymore, but it was so that Adam would have a helper to do the work of God. They were married in a sense. God created Eve so that they could be married, so that they can do the work of God together. They were married for service of God. You see, you serve God when you're single, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, And when you get married, you continue to serve God together. Your new unit, family unit, is for the service of God. And that's why Paul says, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you must only marry Christians. If marriage is to be for the service of God, then if you are a Christian, then you marry only Christians. Now, where do we get this from? Well, look at verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is, to, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now, if you think about this, it should make perfect sense. You see, it will be a foolish thing if you are a Christian and choose to marry a non-Christian. If you're already married, okay, You're already married as non-Christians and then one of you become a Christian, that's a different story. But if you are a Christian while you are single and you choose to marry a non-Christian, that's a foolish thing. 
Because how can your marriage be in the service of God? How can you raise godly offsprings in the instructions of the Lord? How can you both serve and love the same true God? You see, one will care less for your God. One will not even care about the God you love. One will, in fact, worship another God, another an idol. In such a marriage, what will happen is you'll either marginalise Christ. Christ becomes less important because you are with your spouse. Or what can also happen is you marginalise your spouse when you think about the things of Christ. And so in a marriage like this, what, what happens is that it strangles your growth as a Christian or what can also happen is it strangles your growth as a couple or it does both. And so you can see it's a foolish thing. If you are a Christian, extremely foolish to marry a non-Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but if you think about this and if you've heard stories, and I've heard many stories of my relatives who've done this, I can't imagine how difficult, how heartbreaking, how heartaching it will be to know that the person you love most in this world will end up in a different place. That is heartbreaking. And so, why put yourself in that situation? And so, what this also means then is, why even date a non-Christian if you are a Christian? If you follow Christ, if you want to serve him and if you want a marriage where it is for the service of God, why put yourself in that place? Now, some people say, we date non-Christians so that we can bring them to Christ. People call this missionary dating. But I say that is foolish dating. You see, it is foolish for at least two reasons. The vast majority of cases I've seen, what happens is that Christ is marginalised as you go off on your date, as you go off to be united with this non-Christian. Christ is marginalised. And what tends to happen, and what I have seen happening, is these Christians, in a sense, fall away. But it's also foolish on another level, and that is, it's to think that somehow my efforts, my skills, my evangelism can bring a, a person to faith in Christ. That is saying too much about you. That is, in fact, being arrogant. The salvation of any soul is because of God and his mercy. And so here we see marriage is for God. You marry only Christians so that your marriage can be in the service of God. In fact, we're told in this passage, it's not just foolish, you see. We're told in this passage that it is wrong. It is wrong if you are a Christian to marry a non-Christian. Finally, as good as marriage is in God's good design in this creation, as wonderful as marriage is in this creation, marriage is not all there is. Marriage is not the be-all and end-all. You don't have to be married to be fully human. You don't have to be married to be fully satisfied. You don't have to be married to be fully fulfilled and we'll see this when we consider singleness in a few weeks' time. And that's because human marriages have a due date. It is not the ultimate human destiny. You see, human marriages will be superseded by something far greater, far better. And that is the marriage between Christ and his church, that union, that intimacy. That is far better and that is what our human marriages are a shadow pointing towards. And so as intimate and as profound and as wonderful human marriages are, they pale in comparison to the greater real marriage between Christ and the church. 
You see, there is something better than what we have now, as good as marriage is. And so in heaven, Yvonne uh, and myself, we've, we've spoken about this. Yvonne, uh, when, when we talk about heaven, we, we talk about how good it is, but yet we, we miss the fact that how, how can we not be married in heaven? Marriage is so good. But, but you see, we need to be reminded that there's something far greater and far better and far more joyous and far more intimate than our human relationship. That is just a shadow. And so in heaven we'll stop, probably still, still be mates. I'll know Yvonne, we'll know that life on earth. We were married, but we'll enjoy something far greater. Probably still hang out, have coffee and hot chocolate and things like that. But heaven, what we'll have there will be far greater. And so tonight we, we've talked a lot about marriage. A lot of confusion about marriage, but we've heard what marriage is meant to be in God's good design. It is good not just for Christians, it is good for the world. It is good for this society. Marriage is for sex. Marriage is for life. And marriage is for God. But as good as our marriages are, it's only a shadow of something far greater, far grander, far more profound. And that's the marriage you want to be a part of. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this topic of marriage and as we consider your design for humanity and human relationships, we pray, Lord, that as hard as it is, you might help us to think and to follow a path of righteousness, to do what honours you, so that if we are single, we will honour marriage as marriage. And if we are married, then we will do well to follow the shadow of the greater marriage between Christ and the church. Teach us, Lord to stand firm in what is right and good, not just for us, but for this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we've just heard the biblical view of marriage. Uh, That may have uh, raised some questions for you or you may have further questions on the topic.